0: Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and a nutrition professor, and I'm a formerly competitive bodybuilder.
1: Rob Fortes Fortney here. I'm a former competitive bodybuilder, powerlifter, former editor at MuscleMag International, and current, I don't know, um, upwardly mobile badass. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, run Strength Guild and LiftForHope.org. I'm also a competitive powerlifter and Island Games
0: athlete. So, right on. Hey, I've got a little bit of, uh, it's not so much news, it's an excuse on the science news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. I've had a couple of people mention, I noticed on the Facebook page, that, um, you know, what's the deal? What do I know about green coffee extracts and anything going on with uh, myostatin inhibitors? Mm-hmm. And um, rather than just jump right into this and, you know, waste time, especially with, with our guest, um, I'm on it. Uh, that's, uh, for right now, I'll tell you, when it comes to myostatin inhibitors, I'll give you a little teaser. Eat your broccoli and Brussels sprouts. That's all I'll say. But there is some new science on uh, myostatin inhibitors. Um, I'm rather sure that supplement companies are already jumping all over this. But, again, the important thing is how much does this really pan out in the real world. So, um, But, anyway, and the green coffee thing I'll talk about next week.
2: And I was just going to mention, you know, the camp again, it's coming right up on us. I think we had two more people that signed up. Um, so it, it's filling up fast. Still a couple spots out there. We've already got, I've got truckloads of mashed potatoes and potato salad showing up um, and, and meat. And so get signed up and come on out. Right. For meat
1: and potatoes, good time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, Fortress, what's up with you?
1: Well, um, just a couple things. Got a couple nice letters. Um, One gentleman, um, he was just responding to our last episode. We were talking about passion. Um, He said he loved the last episode about having a passion for the game. And he he says one thing I would like to add is that to have passion for something is to suffer for it. So I thought that was an interesting thing, just to add it as a add as a kind of a an addition to what we were talking about last week. The whole idea of suffering for your passion. So. Um, and the next thing I want to say is actually I got a very nice letter, and I'll use his name because he says it's okay. Uh, from John Thompson, he's in the UK, and he sent me an email um, with a link to. Um, well, I'll just read it. Um, I promise. I propose my two-year-old son as the youngest as the youngest member of the Iron Brotherhood. If you search Iron Radio's youngest lifter on YouTube, and again I, I urge all our listeners to go and check it out. Iron Radio's youngest listener. On YouTube, you will find a video of my son doing his very first deadlift at age 24 months, two weeks old. (laughs) Um, Bless his little heart, he loves to copy his dad, and after some time of watching me and my gym partner work the racks, I can see it was time for his first taste of iron. He ripped that shit off the deck like a baby pro. I've never been so proud. <laughs> Would love, love it if you could mention his name. Yes, of course. And I emailed him back and said I'd, I'd be more than happy to. His name is Jay Thompson. He's age two. He's from Yorkshire, England. And um, anyway, he just uh, wanted to say that he like, likes the show and uh, um, wishes us all the best in our life in, in competition. But yes, so um, John Thompson, thank you very much from England for, um, for your letter and to your son Jay Thompson. Uh You might be too young to even know any of this kind of stuff, but hey, buddy, nice work! And like I say, I urge all our listeners to go to YouTube, Iron Radio's youngest listener, check it out, awesome, and leave a and leave a comment too. I, I left a comment, and uh, I just think it's great. So hey, this
0: this young man could be the next Eddie Cohn, and you heard it here first. Exactly, people. you
1: never know. Exactly. You His never first kn-
0: media attention.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So,
2: congratulations, Jay, and you can get a hold of me here in about 35 years when I allow my daughter to start dating. She's going to need a, a nice, strong young man that's into the iron. Right so on. She, she's a lifter as well. So, he, he's got to be into older women. She's five. So. <laughs>
1: <clears throat>
2: but good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, we have Ken O'Neill with us today. Ken. Eddie, Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And and uh, gently sitting there quietly while we we shut out some banter, um no, I just want to get in and you know we've been talking about having you on the show for a little while here, and me and you have uh, had a few conversations, and uh I want to just let you roll with the listeners, but first want to get into kind of your past and and where you came from um so kind of standard is how'd you get started in the uh physical
3: culture as it is? I got started in nineteen fifty nine we were chasing dinosaurs around those days. <laughs> uh, I started, uh, as a student in high school, uh, as a swimmer. And the district that I was in was probably the worst or the best in the United States, depending on, uh, if you wanted to win or training with champs was okay. Because in the, uh, at that time, the Santa Clara Swim Club, uh, was composed of teenagers, who generally had all the Olympic gold, silver, and bronze from the uh, 1962 Olympic Games. Um, So it was a tough district. Um, We had a coach who was visionary, who was a rebel, who had us doing weight training. All the other coaches at my high school were convinced that weight training would make you muscle-bound. Uh, something spring-type uh, chest expander um, manufacturers had unleashed as a myth to keep people from buying barbells mm. to buy their their cheaper products. So Coach Thruffle, uh, who I sometimes con- connect with on Facebook, he's uh, still around, uh, introduced us to weight training. And within um, a few months, the school year was over. He resigned. He was moving on to a better coaching physician and advised us to buy barbells. So I got a set, started lifting at home, 100 pound set. Pretty soon I had to buy some 25s. Uh, my early lifting was all homemade wooden benches and that kind of equipment. Stuff we wouldn't even entertain using today. Um, this was in the late 50s, early 60s, in the San Jose, uh, San Francisco Bay area. And fortunately, the west coast was a good place to be because between the Bay Area and LA, there was a lot of lifting. And in those days, lifting was not specialized and differentiated into bodybuilding versus powerlifting versus Olympic lifting. You'd go to a AAU sanctioned competition that would begin at nine in the morning run to five or six in the afternoon, there'd be a break, and then the bodybuilding show. And as likely as not, folks that were competing in powerlifting or folks that were competing in Olympic lifting stayed around and competed in the bodybuilding as well. We did everything. We trained, in, I guess, in general in those days. Uh, what began to alter everything in the early 60s was the introduction to Dianabol, and uh, we were so ignorant in those days, we thought this new steroid was just another food supplement because we had about four food supplements at that time, B-complex vitamins, B12, crude, crude protein powder, and a few other things. Um, but very quickly, the debates raged. I dropped out of competition uh, after placing in the 1966 California State Powerlifting Champions because – by that time, it was pretty much cast in concrete that if you were going to move ahead, you had to take steroids. And the court was out. We had a lot of adverse um, information about how damaging they were. We did know that several champions, both in Olympic uh, in powerlifting and in bodybuilding, um, had to quit competing due to liver problems. Which began to cast dispersion. So I continued on training for many, many decades. Uh, went on to graduate school, went on to do other things. Uh, but training's always been a part of my life there. Now, to backtrack around uh, 1960, I was still in high school. I was recommended to visit the San Jose YMCA. And I did. And that led to joining the YMCA, that led to getting up Saturday morning, well before the family, cooking up a breakfast, hiking a few miles to uh Greyhound bus station and taking a bus into San Jose to get there around 9 because between 9 in the morning and 11, just about everybody was there, the Olympic lifters, the power lifters, the bodybuilders, uh track and field guys, people in a wide variety of sports and, and recreational uh, lifters as well. For a 16-year-old kid, that was immersion in a culture of mentors. Much of what I learned and know to this day has only been major lessons were learned then. A couple of pro wrestlers uh, sized me up, figured out I was a, a bookish kid in science programs in high school, and took me aside and said, you know, you're a pretty smart guy. But you ain't worth crap on the street. You get your ass <laughs> dusted. <clears throat> we propose to teach you self-defense. So every Saturday, my <clears throat> two hours extended to three with an hour on the mats with a couple of guys who did not pull punches, who came at me with fists and rubber knives and rubber guns. and uh, I just excelled at it. I had so much <laughs> fun. I later found it was intermediate jiu-jitsu they were teaching me. But there came a point where they said, kid, think of the Karate Kid film. Kid, there's more you've got to learn, and we can't teach it to you. We want you to go a couple of miles east of here to 640 North 5th Street in San Jose to the San Jose Buddhist Temple. The Olympic, uh, the um, Tuesdays and Thursday nights, they have a judo club. And did they have a judo club? Several hundred people working out with a coach who went on to become the U.S. Olympic judo coach. So they sent me over for that, and they sent me over for something else that I knew a little bit about, because being in the San Francisco Bay Area with a large Asian population, and with the dean of uh, uh, Zen in the West, Alan Watts, doing regular programs on one of the early PBS stations, I knew a little bit about this stuff called meditation. Well, I got hooked. I found that my normal mind had a mind of its own that I wasn't much in ownership or control of. And what I began to develop were some skills that uh, might eventually qualify me to get a driver's license for my own mind. The combination of of, uh, intense physical activity and, frankly, meditation that that fueled making it intense uh, led me to some choices in graduate education. I went on to do a master's degree, uh, having to learn languages like Sanskrit and Chinese in a Buddhist graduate school, Japanese Buddhist graduate school, and then was sent on a fellowship to Japan where I did uh, more advanced training. I was tested to make sure I knew something and was granted a teaching credential akin to that of a Zen master. It's called Kyoshi. Well, I came back to the United States with this Strange dual kind of personality, one part that was a, a gym rat and the other doing meditation. And I met up with another guy that looked at the world in the same way. He used to arrange um, to do bodybuilding uh, 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 tours of Japan and have the schedule set up so he could sneak off and do a week or two intense sessions in, in Zen temples. Uh, he quit going to Japan when we met and... Um, we began cross-training. His name is Frank Zane. Frank's won every title in professional bodybuilding, including three times Mr. Olympia. And um, it was just one of those meetings with remarkable people that, that gave birth to something. Wow. Uh, you and Frank are still friends, right? We've been friends for about 36 years. He was out here in 2011 for the uh, dedication of the Weeder Museum. Weeder Physical Culture Museum. We spent a couple of uh, raucous days together. Um, another one that I've known much less than Frank, but on the same interest level with consciousness and will, has been Bill Pearl. Bill's done considerable work in meditation and hypnosis and uh, kindred uh, ways of focusing the mind and then the big inspiration growing up as a kid we all knew he was doing something and he unnerved people was the only Olympic lifter to ever win the coveted AAU Sullivan Award for Athletic Achievement and that was Tommy Kono Tommy Kono came out of the concentration camps of World War II and out of the Buddhist Temple of uh, Sacramento uh, with focus that Unnerved opposition uh, we 've heard legends of him just staring at an opponent and, and unnerving them
1: <laughs> i have I have Tommy Kono with uh,
3: knee wraps We had a couple of <laughs> two by fours that he had driven a spike through in our garage gym in Sunnyvale, California, close to fifty years ago. Mm. We got to meet him a few times i mean he was he was uh, winding down his career at that time uh, Kono's a remarkable man. Sure. So I've had these these kind of dual influences. I gave everything a name about 15 years ago. Frank loved it. He's used it in several of his books. And it was him that got me writing about uh, 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, in his Building the Body publication, doing a series on what we call, it's a play on words, Bodhi Building.
0: Bodhi is a Sanskrit word
3: that means wisdom. So the whole thrust of what I'm really full speed ahead developing now as Bodhi building is is the development of character, the development of the focused intent that we bring forth to embody our potent, embody our, our dormant human potential. And I take much of our importance of the dormant human potential to be our physical development. If you've read uh, McAllister's book, Manthropology... It's clear from archaeological uh, remains that contemporary man is a shrunken, weakened, smaller, slower, smaller cranial capacity version than ancestors as close back as 20,000 years ago. It's noteworthy that of um, the pandemic of chronic degenerative diseases that's bleeding our 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 culture morally and emotionally and fiscally dry benefiting big pharmaceutical companies and other cartels of uh, medical illness maintenance um, rest also in a lack of respect, a lack of living in um, harmony with our genetic makeup how so? our hunter-gatherer uh, our primitive ancestors were born active They developed large muscles. They developed large bones. The insertion points where the muscles joined the bones was much larger. We so profoundly underlive our dormant potential. This is not an ad for the paleo movement. The paleo movement, in my opinion, is fiction. This is hardcore anthropology, which suggests that the preventative step for modern 35 major diseases afflicting modern culture lies in activity, specifically stimulating development and maintenance of type 2 muscle fiber. Uh, The new people in genomics and proteomics tell us how that happens. Uh, Classes of hormones and events that are sequenced from activity, and if you're inactive, you're downgrading metabolism. So it's been a long strange journey and Bodie Building is really an attempt to honor and live the wisdom that's innate to our d- genetic story. So that's what I'm doing these days. I'm about <laughs> <laughs> it may sound nuts uh because I uh, I've, I've lived by a very uncommon uh pathway through life
0: but yeah. if I could comment yeah. Ken... um <laughs> First of all, holy eightfold path. I didn't yeah. know it was such a, um Buddhist, um, I mean, I had heard that Frank Zane was into meditation and, and that sort of thing, but I didn't know that there was, that Buddhism was woven into some of the physical culture like that, uh, through the sixties. I mean, that's, that's very interesting to me. But secondly, I think it's very cool and it's probably more common than maybe we realize that, uh, people have, a desire at least certain people more maybe innately more than others i don't know but for self-actualization in one way or the other so you know they're i mean they're going to school you know in um well like exercise physiology you know or nutrition or you're just mentioning anthropology or uh genetics epigenetics i mean there's lots of things to study and i think it's very cool that you know there are people who uh really sort of smash that myth you know that people who are interested in um Physicality are somehow dumb or not interested in intellect and you know what I mean I, I, I see that the, the, these are very similar paths they 're paths toward you know, improving and self actualization just different ways you know intellectual or spiritual or physical um, but it 's cool to hear some of the some of the history there'
3: well, yeah. no, an integrative uh, approach too when we moved to Wimberley four years ago, we established in our living room a month once monthly meeting called the Wimberley Valley think Tank. And its objective was for the group to contribute to an emerging grassroots awakening facilitated by education in uh, preventative wellness care. But the caveat to that was we were looking at interdisciplinarity leading to an integrative approach. What we have today with so damn many specializations is
0: widespread panic and widespread chaos due to fragmentation of knowledge. You know, it's very interesting to hear you say that because at three major universities that I've been a part of, there's always been this urgence to come out of our individual silos, you know, in different majors. And work together on, instead of trying to say this is what the exercise science person does, this is what the physical therapist does, this is what the you know athletic trainer does or whatever nutritionist do all these different things instead it's like here's a problem let's let go of this you know grasping at our individual majors and address the problem you know oh, here's how we would look at this oh that's fascinating here's how we would look at it and you you know you you end up with this transdisciplinary um approach that's just far better than anybody trying to struggle with it themselves you know yeah so, yeah the uh, the
3: business of the Latin Renaissance is largely unfinished. We don't have a humanism befitting humans, and what you're describing is a pathway to it. What we're going to be doing with some of our, our next sessions is, instead of saying, how does Chinese medicine view type 2 diabetes, which tacitly gives authority, greater authority to Western medicine and its diagnostics to colonize other traditions, we're going to say instead, these presenting conditions – how do you doing chinese medicine understand them how do you doing uh, alternative medicine understand mm. them yeah. to f- to force a, a a transparadigm discussion right yep yep no i mean i think it's fascinating i mean
2: just me coming from i often get odd looks from people with my master's degree in art and i the, the very many parallels that i draw with it to the physical world um training and it's uh you know, I, I I don't think people, like you said, they don't take enough into account. They try to get too too one focused on things. And uh, I think any of the arts really can bleed into each other. And, you know, the, the, the holistic view, just education in a sense is better no matter what, especially if you bring it all into a whole. Actually, but,
0: my wife and I, my wife's a counselor. We were talking about how so many of the things that benefit, say, obesity or diabetes also benefit mood. You know, they reduce mild depression or anxiety. Uh you know what I mean? And so it's just it's remarkable to me to me that, you know, there is so much overlap that what you know. Have living any of you guys way. read
3: uh Gaty's book?
0: No. no. I
3: don't remember the title offhand. Uh he's a psychologist. What he shows is that within twenty minutes of a workout our brains are flooding us with production of uh, uh neurotransmitters and neuropeptides. One school district outside of Chicago got wind of this in something called new PE that was uh, individually paced rather than team based, mm-hmm. and started first doing self-esteem kind of stuff with kids. But they quickly learned that if they worked with their uh, whoever did the scheduling to put kids in the um, right after PE in their two worst subjects that their performance was profoundly enhanced by the neurochemical benefits of that workout. Then that district went on to do something different. It went for the gold knowing this. Kids in that district, middle school kids, in international science and mathematics competition, going up against kids in China and Japan and India where academic achievement is taken seriously. Mm Mm-hmm. That was the only school in the United States to finish first in the science and third in the math competition. Wow. And it was simply due to honoring a, a, a innate rhythm uh, yes. that involved our neurochemistry. I'm yeah. convinced that, first of all, I think that psychiatry... One reason I went to Japan, one reason I made a choice in 1968 about graduate school was... I had a dual um, major in philosophy and psychology. And at that time, Western philosophy was a bunch of dead ends talking about talk. Very disinteresting. And psychology was either uh, running rats through mazes or looking at Freudian reductionism. And, you know, Freud thought basically you could explain everything in the world in terms of sexual perversion. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: So I wanted to go someplace where they'd study peak performance, and they had a mapping of dormant human potentials, and that's why I went to Japan. Um, The psychologies there are very, very different. But what's happened to psychiatry since then is it's moved from Freud to neurochemistry. It's moved to pharmaceuticals. That don't cure a damn thing, you know. Freud had no cure rate, and and the psychiatry has no cure rate. They knock out a hemisphere, they downregulate uh, brain metabolism to create a class of vegetables. And yeah. with kids, it's it's just absolutely pathetic that uh, psychiatrists are allowed to put children on. Those classes of drugs.
0: Ken, have you read Have you uh, read Andrew wheel's new book, uh, Spontaneous Happiness? No, I have not. I haven't read it, but I'll tell you one of the things I, I heard him on Science Friday months ago, and I thought it was brilliant. He was saying, you know, because you know, as far as um, naturalistic type, you know, physicians, he's to me, he's very legitimate. He doesn't s- strike me as hokey or too far, you know, in left field. And he's talking about how antidepressants, um, in many cases, in clinical trials are no better than placebo, and how physical activity, or maybe something as simple as omega-3 fats, um, outperform the antidepressant meds from some of these big pharmaceutical firms. And, you know, that's dangerous talk, you know, (laughs) that's dangerous talk.
3: Well, it is. And I'm willing to bet if, you know, 18% of the domestic national product comes from pharmaceuticals and medical care. We're we're looking not at something idealistic. We're looking at hardcore business. Yeah. They're in right. business for you to be sick. Yeah. And that includes the metal. Now, I lived in Tucson for 12 years, and I, I know Andy Wilde to some extent. He's a down-to-earth, nice guy. He's, he's authentic. And I happen to agree with what he's saying. I'll add a little bit to it. Some of it's on my blog. There's an article called Body by Play. When you go to India and China, the world first of all they don't divide body and mind. We're, we're an embodied mind. We're holistic. Secondly, they don't look at the cause. Of, they don't look. They're not obsessed with morality and questions of the nature of evil and so on. They look at our world experience as being one of being born into a society, being enculturated by that society that we take on the beliefs, the dominant beliefs and and emotions and taboos and all the stuff that constitutes a a social framework. That's who we become. So in in a way, we've got this big veil of the imposition of social conditioning upon us that prevents us from knowing ourself. And in most cultures, knowing ourself is the big taboo because if you know yourself, you're suddenly running around as a free person with choices that doesn't conform terribly well. The the liberation philosophies of India and China hold that when we begin to work out, do things, body and mind, especially if they're well orchestrated, that doesn't so much liberate us, but down regulates, brings about states of calm and relaxation, that gets us off the stress roller coaster ride we're normally on. Well, long term, some part of you is going to make a choice. going. It feels a whole lot better to feel calm, relaxed, and feeling this weight off my shoulders that gives rise to something I didn't know was there before. An innate, subtle sense of bliss and um, self-acceptance. That's the point where waking up where liberation happens. And so, what Weil is saying, I understand Weil will be saying through you, is totally consistent with what I understand about the world. That the problem with suffering, the problem with neurosis, the problem with stress isn't something in the world and isn't some character flaw myself. It's a topic for education pursuant to becoming an authentic full person.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think it does actually you know some of what you're saying a lot of our listeners i think can probably identify there's sort of a you know occasional discussion that goes on about how just you know bringing this back to weight training in general and you know all the disciplines we're we're sort of all inclusive you know with the with the podcast and everything and a lot of these guys they do feel like they're uh, some of them they're on their own they're like oh thank goodness you know we can listen to the show because i don't mm-hmm. have a lot of other you know, lifters around me or people that have that same passion for self-actualization uh, and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And at the same time, they do balk uh, what society tells them they should be or shouldn't be, in a sense. You know, there's so many mis- misconceptions, I think, uh, about the kind well, of things that we do. You know? and this is one thing with the fitness
3: industry that really irritates me. I've gone after some of the major magazines to do two things. One, to do a sort of preventative wellness or past 50 orientation to training that isn't focused on getting bigger arms, but focused on getting better blood panels. They don't want to hear it. The supplement manufacturers call the shots, and they're hawking to a market demographic of 15 to 30-year-olds who they presume don't want to know anything about older people. And what seems so patently ridiculous to me is the nutrient requirements uh, and products that they sell to the kids generally have uh, sterling benefits uh, in terms of longevity, anti-aging products. The other is the self-actualization. I mean, to me, maybe I'm nuts with this, but when I look at art history from around the world, from ancient India, from ancient China, (coughs) the Farnese Hercules, it seems to me that something in our ancestral imagination upholds the benefit of um, and 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 the aesthetics of physical development.
0: Yes, you know, Ken, when when yeah. you mentioned something about that earlier, I thought about the the book that Bill Pearl gave to me. You know, about the it just reaches back so far into physicality. You know, in the world in general, uh, and I, I admit I haven't had a chance to go through that page by page, but. What, uh, the three volume set? Uh, I just got one, um, but I was, I, he sent me a signed copy and I, it's like, you know, I, I'm afraid to even touch it too much. I want to keep it pristine. <laughs> yeah, but, he, he, I mean, I
3: did, he sent me the set when it first came out. I published a, uh, <clears throat> review article that that shamelessly did nothing but promote the book in Iron Man. Yeah, yeah,
0: good. Well, good because yeah, he's the yeah. kind of guy I think, you know, that's the kind of message we want to get out. And not not only his attitude because we've had him on the show twice, but also uh chronicling uh kind of what you're saying, you know, the physicality and the it, pursuit of muscle in that throughout yeah. history, you know. Do you know well, that in the late 80s, people at Tufts University, Evans
3: and Rosenberg undertook studies questioning the validity of the uh, age-old idea that muscle wasting is a normal condition of aging. You guys heard of their work? Mm -hmm. Well, what they found out was that muscle wasting (coughs) is not a normal condition of aging. Muscle wasting is an abnormal manifestation of early aging brought upon by sedentary lifestyle inactivity. They went on to publish a little one-page, two-page fact sheet called 10 Determinants of Aging that listed as the number one thing to do to stop aging is to lift weights. You're here. They were decade ahead of, you know, the human genome was still being decoded at that time. The the, the newer stuff, the really sexy stuff going on in exercise physiology right now wasn't known to them. Um, And nobody seems to have connected the dots. To me, it seems evident. That is, and then, when was it? Two years ago, we were over at the uh, Stark Center for a reception for Dr. Kenneth Cooper. And again, Cooper reiterated his point that in 1968, I published aerobics. I thought aerobics were the panacea. By the 90s, I began to realize that the statistics showed that aerobics had not had any impact on lowering incidences of heart disease and cancer. Subsequently, I found that <clears throat> uh, aerobic dominant training results in uh, loss of, you know, the uh, stealing of uh, branch chain amino acids and loss of muscle mass. So he's now recommending limited cardioactivity and a lot of strength training. Mm-hmm. That's no, and I, I think the whole show
2: so far has been, you know, a resounding theme that we've tried to have from the start, too. And it's the strong body and strong mind. You know, they go hand in hand. Um, Most of the strongest people that I've seen and met and and friends with, are they're much more than that. You know, and most of the people that I see that aren't there, are they're so wrapped up in being that, that that's all
3: they are, and they never reach it, (laughs) if if that makes sense. In my case, I think there's a development of mm -hmm. character that (coughs) can occur with strength development. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I and mean, that's what a samurai or a, a martial artist develops in their own way. Because you're dealing with frontiers of, of emotion that the every oh. person shies away from: pain, self doubt, mm-hmm. um, focus. And if you get there, learn that state of emptying the mind of everything and becoming the lift. Yeah.
2: No, and you see it believe and I've seen it hundreds of times with my clients. You know, I mean, we can, you know, without a drug, cure depression. You know, through through physical training and, you know, growing a strong mind and, and self-confidence. And especially, I do it a lot with women and just how, how powerful they can become. And it's not just physically. Um,
0: through the use of a barbell. Fortunately, prevention... Well, like Ken was saying, it's just not our model. We have a reactive medical system. Uh, yeah. you know, I, the students that I see graduate in my majors, uh, whether it's been in nutrition departments or exercise science departments, unless they go on into a field that is involved with rehabilitation or treatment or reactive medicine, if they try to do something preventive, there's not much money there for them, mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, because that's not how insurance companies really operate. I mean, sometimes they toss a bone. You know, yeah. for a wellness program or whatnot. But, uh, we, yeah, we don't, it's like we don't want to acknowledge, and again, because whether it's the drug, the big drug uh, companies or, um, the way medicine works in general, you know, it's, uh, like I said, it's dangerous talk because we end up with a, a situation <laughs> where People won't need that thirty thousand dollars surgery. They won't need uh, disease management. Ken, I thought that was awesome because that's exactly what we're talking about. If you, do you really think if somebody discovered a cure for cancer, they'd be eager to bring it to market? You know, this sounds conspiracy theorist of me maybe, but I don't think so. Hell no! Something would want to manage the cancer. Right. I live yeah. in
3: Texas where we have a man named Stanislaw, uh-huh. yep, MD PhD, who the FDA. Wasted sixty-six million dollars of taxpayers' money, Watch attempting to steal his patents and put him in jail for three hundred years. Yep. He's been able to defeat some forms of can- some forms of cancer with, pharmaci- with drugs that do genetic epigenetic <clears throat> manipulation. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I mean, I had I-, I mentioned I dropped out in '66 from competition because of <clears throat> the bane of steroids. In the last year, I've come to learn, I was real vocal about drug-free, natural, and I'm so ashamed of having been so ignorant, so misled about the nature of steroids. Um, What started it was reading Nelson Virgil and um, Michael Mooney's book, Built to Survive. Nelson is incredibly fit. He's 26 years HIV positive, and they have published a book on the application of nutrient-dense diet, appropriate supplements, bodybuilding, and steroids for uh,
0: preventing muscle wasting and keeping HIV patients alive. Right. I remember when Michael came out with that, um, well, at least when I became aware of it. I actually have one of his PowerPoints on my hard drive somewhere that he would present. But it was so... Um, taboo you know you're talking about like social norms and how they put you know judgments of ethics over people's minds sort of sort of Mm -hmm. um and the whole use of oxandrolone. you know he's like listen i'm trying to preserve muscle mass and someone if they're if they lose a certain amount of muscle mass their immune system will tank and they will die and there was such a stigma around anabolic steroids like Anovar that they wouldn't no no that's still not ethical and you know and i mean why was this a fight for for people like michael at all you know what I mean? I can't understand why physicians who wanted to use this for a very noble cause <clears throat> were dissuaded to the point of being discredited. You know. Well, well one, or, one test that I've started applying
3: to uh, physicians is asking them what they know about uh, norandolone about nortestosterone. Most had never heard of it, and then i "You haven't heard of it? It's bioidentical. What do you mean? We produce it. What do you think, Mark?" McGuire was doing when he took 19 nora. He was feeding a pro-hormone for his body to finish the conversion.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I've had several physicians get very angry. Not at me, mm-hmm. but at having been distorted and lied to in medical school. Mm-hmm. If you go on uh, Google Scholar and just start looking at norandrolone and um, tendinitis, norandrolone and you know rotator cuff, there's all sorts of peer-reviewed articles showing really positive benefit from uh, relatively small doses of DECA, Durablin, uh, mixed with testosterone, for facilitating what's basically a type of uh, stem cell therapy um, for tissue regeneration. It's used successfully in treating breast cancer. So the more I learned about this, I thought, well, this demonization is horrible and it's counterfactual. In those moments, I have to remember to ask the question, follow the money trail. And I think in this case, we've got a combination of um, journalists who tend to be very irresponsible people. We have another class of professional clowns that occupy Republican and Democrat seats in Congress, who specialize in grandstanding and moralizing? So you put the two together, and the ability to create a web of illusion is powerful enough there. I, I frankly think the use of anabolics in medical treatment—you know—you can do it off-label, but doctors are scared to death to do it. Um, I think again, I you know, I don't know if it's conspiracy theory. I don't tend to uh, go for conspiracy theory. On the other hand, economic causality is a perfectly good model for investigation. And um, it's not the, the to the benefit
0: of big pharmaceutical organizations to heal people. No. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I will say this on the flip side. This is something that I wrestle with personally, which is, you know, if you bash the medical establishment too hard, you know, I, I almost start to take offense in a sense that, um, you know, Years of study, uh, objective studies—not always just done, you know, from Pfizer or Merck or some big pharmaceutical, whatever. We have made progress in what we understand about the human body, and all when it, when it's um, when people start to point fingers a little too hard and just discredit everything that's been accomplished, I start to get very uneasy because what that does is. It, the wrong person could come along and instead of questioning authority, which is good they 'll come along and they 'll twist it to sell something of their own you know oh, the medical yeah. establishment has it bad i 've got it right you know yeah. and I think that that puts us in a hopeless state of ignorance uh, as opposed to just questioning authority, like you said, looking at valid arguments like financial uh drivers you know or like the like you were saying the the drug you know disease management model um. But, again, I think we can go too far into left field and then just start bashing it all because then we're just back to almost the dark ages of mysticism, and, and I can't have that either.
3: Well, and, I agree, and I really think to facilitate a paradigm shift of, of that's overdue, I, I don't know how we're going to do it, but uh, we clearly need to get physicians together in a context in which they're just part of the gang. Mm -hmm. and can take a critical look at the profession about... You you know what translational medicine is from theory to practice? Sure, yeah. I think what you were talking about in terms of discovery, that's where clinicians, that's where uh, discovery is. We're still locked into what boards of medical examiners uh, regard as standard practices. That's where physicians can are, are... really cast into a role of being rigid. Oh, sure.
0: Standards of practice even trickle down into allied health professions. You know, I don't want to say lesser, but you know what I mean. Uh, People Mm -hmm. who don't hold all the legal authority. And there are standards of practice that you're more or less expected to follow. They'll even have evidence libraries that are, you know, sort of hand-picked and, uh, in a worst case scenario, cherry-picked to meet a certain organization's M.O., you know. Yeah. um, and, and that ties the hands of anybody who, like you're saying, in a translational setting, it's like, because this is how it should be. You shouldn't have people dictating practice. You shouldn't have, and unfortunately, I've seen this a lot, the scientists and the clinicians butting heads. You know, the scientists look down on the clinicians, oh, you're not very educated. You know, we, we're the ones handing down the knowledge. We're the ones making the discoveries. And on the flip side, the clinicians, not always, fin- not always, you know, the doctors, medical doctors, but, you know, they're coming back and saying, what are you talking about? We're the pinnacle of the profession. You guys are just eggheads in a lab. So, you know, best case scenario, you, you're not dictated standards of practice. You've got the scientists and the clinicians working together in a reciprocal model. You, hey, look what I just discovered. Go try, the, you know, let's give this a try. Oh, that worked great for my patients. Or, oh, that didn't work great. You know, and then that leads to the next scientific discovery. You know what I mean? But this is this is this this calls for so much human cooperation, um, Like you said, I don't know how we're going to get there.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and I I find it very frustrating because the rules I live by and the expectations I have is that's gentlemanly conduct. That's how we go about life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm fortunate to have a physician who works with me. I'm fortunate through our um, think tank to have met some other physicians who don't have any problem receiving emails and in some cases I'll send them an email about something and a week later they've sent it on to another physician or two and that physician is getting back to me going, Good question, here's what I think about it. I mean
0: I love that
3: Ow. kind of interaction. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah.
2: No, and I mean I think it, like like Ken said, it all boils down to money when you're talking you know, especially when we're talking things like the you know, using Angelo decanate and stuff like that on HIV patients. It's not it's not profitable, it's not sexy. And it's well, it's not, money,
0: and it's, it's like yeah. Ken said, it's that social veil, too, that it, you yes. know, these things just become taboo, irrational the taboos, they become do dogma. Yeah. You know, right. it's very dogmatic.
2: And it's, you know, I mean, there's no, it's sad to say, but the, then you don't have a medication that needs a medication to combat the medication, that needs another medication to combat that medication. You know, you're using something that's, in, in many cases, bioidentical already, that your body already knows what to do with. Well, um, I'm and, told, and we know the side effects.
3: I'm told largely. that several of the very large um, life extension clinics that cater to the very wealthy mm. uh, are now doing a more complex bioidentical hormone replacement. Their patients are receiving, from what I've been told, uh, weekly injections of testosterone, cypionate and
0: decadrablin. Yeah, that's, now that's interesting to me because yeah. there has been some progress, I think, on TV. People talk about low T and yeah. once yeah. it becomes something that everybody might be interested in instead of just the lifter, now all of a sudden the ethics change. Yeah. You know, now it's okay. Oh, but, I can I, I, but I don't think they've gone so far as to, as to say it's okay to combine testosterone with, with a you know, with growth hormone therapy or, or with nandrolone, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in some sort of ideal. Well, I've had doctors respond to me, top
3: pointing out that nandrolone is, Bioidentical. The, not only they didn't know that, but gee whiz, your point is right. HRT is, is not balanced because we're doing the test without the other. Mm-hmm. And the benefits of nandrolone include, uh, it, it metabolizes to DHN, dihydroxyneurandrolone, over testosterone being metabolized by 5-alpha reductase. Resulting in less irritation to the prostate Prostate, and less baldness. I mean, there's some really interesting biochemical or metabolic uh, things that happen with that combination, but it's not studied and it's not studied as a as a natural um, bioidentical alternative.
0: I will say this: if listeners are interested, Kevin Yerushesky, who came out of the Kent State lab about a generation before I did, same lab. He has done uh, very interesting work with testosterone and growth hormone combinations um, in young and older men and weightlifters. So if you want to actually hear uh, what little bit of science has done, because, I mean, think about how almost um, uh, just radical he was doing. He was actually giving growth hormone and uh, injections to young weightlifters to see what would happen. Yeah. Uh, and this oh. is Wash U-, U School of Medicine. You know, this is completely legitimate stuff. And then over many times, uh, years, he's actually come to the conclusion that a lot of bodybuilders could have told him years ago, which was the combination of testosterone and growth hormone is going to do much more than just testosterone or just GH alone. Mm. You know, uh, it's kind of like what Ken is saying. You know, if you, do, if you create these um, specific <laughs> polypharmacy kinds of blends, you know, you end up with um, completely different effects. But apparently nobody's looking at the cover of mu- muscle magazines and realizing that that's not just one thing those guys are on you know i mean wouldn't, to get such dramatic yeah. changes of course those guys are overdoing it to the point that they're uh, they've got all kinds of problems but you know i coming,
2: coming back to the well i guess the the social evil of the issue and also the money issue wouldn't it in large part be to the fact that none of these now are you know they're not patentable which means they're not they're not a money making source for one single company no one can monopolize it and overcharge for it and you know they're curative and not causative, I
0: guess <laughs> you know they're not well, think about this Phil. Yeah. I mean, if you get somebody who is low testosterone, physicians are going to be very likely to do something like prescribe him a mix of antidepressants yeah. um you know that's going well, to make yeah. him impotent so here's some Viagra you no. know to get no, I totally agree I mean to I, get an I, erection, whether or not you enjoy sex or uh-huh. not, and instead of like you said, giving something that's curative here's an idea. Testosterone would, you know, if that's the guy's problem, you He's know, or at least part of it. of it, you know, that kind of administration would fix the impotence. It would give him more energy. It would do all the kinds of things. That, at least, like, like I said, the TV commercials are coming around a little bit now. Yeah. Um. And and not just over drug this guy with a habit of different drugs, mm-hmm. and then you know, the guy's still left fat and it yeah. left, you know half <laughs> impotent, and all yeah. because they don't want to prescribe, you know, the S word, you know. Yeah. And yeah. give the guy um, steroid oh, gel or injection, you know, the, 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 and put him the on the iron MD pills. Is totally frightened,
3: you know. They need to put him on the iron pill too. It, that's an old metaphor for working out. Yeah, bit yeah. by the iron bug. or The, the iron, iron pill. You yeah. know
0: what, Ken? Yeah. That is funny because I tell students all the time that we face a deficiency in exercise, just like not oh, enough man. vitamin C, you get scurvy. Well, not enough exercise, and you also fall apart. It's an essential nutrient, if you will.
3: I call it the the exercise deficiency disorder.
0: Yes, absolutely. No, I totally agree. I mean, yeah. Well, guys, we are just about out of time. Um, Listeners, I would love uh, to get Ken back on and talk about, what was it, Phil, about how the... the, Soviet system. Yeah, and their their drug program combined with their exercise programs and how it led to dominance. And And their their Hidden
3: Human Reserves program.
0: Yeah. When they put, so, About the
3: time they put Sputnik in the space, they were also concerned with long-term space flights. Was there a way to put people in states of suspended animation? Were there ways of uh, learning to have voluntary control of autonomic processes? And being Marxists at that time, they weren't under the veil of religious suppression and what they could do in their sciences. So they went out and scoured the world learning everything they could from contemplative traditions, from shamans, from, uh, people with extraordinary abilities, metanormal abilities, and brought them to bear on both medical
0: clinics and sports development. Yeah, that's a topic that we're going to have to tackle in the future. Yeah, that sounds so, really uh, good.
3: The, yeah, we'll just,
2: uh, I'll, I'll keep Ken on the line and we'll, we'll pick another date. So. That good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap this up, then Everybody. Yeah. Uh, so. Ken, thanks for joining us. It, it's been. A, I'm, I'm sure the listeners love it. It's been. A, it's been a great show.
3: It's been fun, man.
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Good time coming on. Thanks for
3: having me. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. We'll get maybe we get Frank to join you one of these days. Yes. We can have a we can have a dual episode. Yeah. Listen to you guys banter with each other. It'd be great. Yeah,
1: that'd be <laughs> great so. to have Frank on.
2: Yeah. So,
1: um, thanks
2: everybody for coming. And uh, next week.
1: Until next week.
0: sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry L-O-W-E-R-Y, and protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state of the art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or